Hello, everybody, and welcome to our Christmas special. Yay, Yay. feeling festive. Who's drinking their eggnog and tucking into mince pies? Yeah, or if you're not in England, anything else? <laughs> <laughs> why, why, what else would you be having? Well, mince pies aren't a massive thing in Australia. It's more just like prawns and Really? Stuff. Prawns in Australia? Oh, yeah, definitely. For Christmas? Yeah. You get like a ring of prawns. What makes it special throughout any other different time of the I, year, I think though. they're quite seasoned for Christmas, and also like because you get like the ring of them, they're all pink, and they're like it's like a wreath of prawns, so they look quite pretty and festive. Seafood at Christmas is quite a thing in Australia. You get like lobster and prawns and fish and various shellfish. And in Russia, it's pickled, pickled everything, pickled salads, yeah, yeah. Okay. and a lot of meats and yeah, 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 loads of salads, like variety of salads, mm-hmm. like olivier. Um, a charlotka, which is yeah. like a herring um, with beetroot. It's really nice, but loads of mayonnaise. That sounds good, actually. It's, it's lovely. I mean, it's really I think delicious. everyone's Christmas food is good, right? I think we, no, nobody saves their worst food for Christmas time. So everything's delicious this time of year, I think. But yeah. that sounds amazing. That sounds really, really good. So does your seafood. Yeah. <laughs> 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 Often a good note. Yeah, so this episode we're going to be talking about two yeah two films quite unusual two christmas films yes but that the audience chose that's true yeah so we put the word out it's your own doing basically and so what are we talking about we're talking about we're talking about like 1988's the action film die hard And 1990s Home Alone. So we, we should also mention that we're not in our usual uh, box in the park in, in, in White City, but we're in sort of too cool for school Camden Town right now. So you may hear little bits of music in the background from other uh, other studios where I'm sure they're perform- like rehearsing for the next big West End hit. Yeah. See, as a nice underscore to yes. our soundtrack. <laughs> our conversation. So don't be alarmed if you hear singing or wailing or saxophone. saxophone. <laughs> <laughs> just, just roll with it. <laughs> and enjoy. Yeah. But before we kind of start talking about the films, I just wanted to maybe ask about, you know, what... What does Christmas mean to you and what makes a great Christmas soundtrack? I mean, you've got obviously the whole religious side of things, which I don't think either of these films really touch terribly much, to be fair. Do we need to do our spoiler alert, Ella? What's the spoiler alert? Our spoiler alert, where we warn people that there's going to be a hell of a lot of spoilers in this episode. There you go. You've been warned. (laughs) There's your spoiler, because I'm going to come right through and say one one of these movies does have a scene in a church. That's about as religious as either of these ever really get. So you, obviously you've got that side of it that we don't forget, but it's not a major part of, of this particular uh, episode. But I think most of it generally comes down to family. Families coming together, celebrating together, eating food like we've just described. I think that tends to be at the heart of most of most Christmas films, like spiritually, as it were. And then... There's a certain musical sound to Christmas, isn't there? For sure. It's definitely in the sleigh bells, yes. for one. It bells in general. Sle- yeah. Sleigh bells, celestes, and woodwind. I think there's an element of woodwind and create that sort of magical feeling to it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. A wistfulness or whimsical element to it. Yeah. And choral, I think. And choirs, choirs. voices. Choirs, yeah, yeah, for sure. All of the things that you'd expect to 
here in a carol service, which mm. I'm sure many of you at home have been to in, in the recent weeks. <laughs> mm, for sure, yeah. So, so that's what it means to me. What does it mean to you, Ella? Well, Christmas, yeah, no, I totally agree that it is, at the end of the day, comes down to, you know, family and coming together at a time, regardless of what the year was like, you know, for you, whether you had troubled times, whether at some points in your, you know, in the year that you didn't get on with your family, this is a time when you've, everything puts aside and you forget about it. Come together anyway. Yeah, exactly. It's all about, I guess, forgiveness and kind of just rekindling things, Mm -hmm. I guess. And there is a magic element to it, particularly if you have little kids. And you get to relive the magic of Christmas through them because of their innocence and how they believe everything that you tell them. And it's just this unconditional love, which Christmas, I guess, is all about. It is, at the end of the day, about unconditional love. And, you know, Christmas music is the one... The sound and musicality needs to reflect that, so it has to emulate a sense of love optimism you know and joy and the ability to come together as a family or as friends as a community you know it's just like whatever you know trials and tribulations you go through at the end of the day this music lifts you up so yeah musically it has to lift you up and you know it's all very emotionally based I, I, I completely agree and I think that's going to be very interesting as as we get into talking about these soundtracks as to whether or not we feel like both movies do all of those things. Our rounds this week. First round, we're going to be talking about Christmas and Christmas music and whether or not these these fulfill their role as, as, as Christmas movies musically. In round two, we're going to be talking about schemes because both of these films involve some pretty elaborate scheming by various characters. Then, of course, because they're both fundamentally sort of action-adventure type films, our third round will be action. Fourth round, as I think you've just hinted there, our fourth round is going to be about emotion and sort of relationships and family and, and, and those sorts of things. And then finally, as usual, in round five, we're going to be talking about legacy. Uh, so, so whether you're coming home from an office Christmas party or at home with your family or maybe even home alone, let's, let's get in and talk about these soundtracks. Great. So round one is going to be Christmas. So let's start off with Die Hard. And I think it's it's probably fairly important just just right off the start of this of this podcast. Is Die Hard a Christmas movie? Yes. What what, what makes you say it's a Christmas movie? Because the screenwriter said it's a Christmas movie. Oh, oh. And so if the guy who wrote it says it's a Christmas movie, then it's a Christmas movie. So there are a lot of people on my Facebook feed who say quite specifically that it's not Christmas until Hans Gruber falls off the Nakatomi Plaza. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> and I, I feel that at least part of that sentiment, I, I think something about Die Hard that taps into the fact of it is a Christmas movie for people who don't particularly like Christmas movies. Exactly. Who people who don't want to be watching like a family type movie, mm-hmm. like your typical general sort of mainstream Christmas movie, you mm-hmm. know, where it's all about romance or love or like an animation. It's I like- think the thing that this film is really missing, sorry to cut you off, I, I think the fil- thing that this film is definitely missing, which you kind of hinted at earlier of being part of Christmas, is it's missing the magic of Christmas. There's no magic of Christmas. Like there's the, fa- there's kind of a family angle, there's definitely Christmas trees and things like that, but it's not about elves, magic, fantasy. There's no Christmas movie. It's miracle. a realistic Christmas movie. Yeah. It's a, it's one of those movies where this is what, what happened, what a typical Christmas in real life is like. 
should like a bunch of terrorists come to take break over. it, take over a tower, like a skyscraper mm-hmm. during your Christmas party? Like that's exactly what you should be expecting during your Christmas party. So. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. It, 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 so people can relate to it. Yes. You know, it's a relatable movie yeah. in that sense. Yeah, and if you don't have time to, to deal with the, the magical side, this is this is the movie that can speak to you and you can be like, you know what, That that's my Christmas. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I think it kind of gives people a break away. Yeah, and it's 30 years old now. Yeah, this is and it's 30th this is, Christmas. Exactly, yeah, it's this 30th anniversary for yeah. sure. So Which I'm glad we timed we're it very well. We have timed it very well. So thank you, audience, for choosing 30th anniversary to talk about Die Hard. So shall we talk about its music? <laughs> so it's it's music. I think one of the things that we're going to sort of get to as we talk about Die Hard's music quite a lot is it quite playfully references things a lot. And Christmas is definitely one of the things that it, that it references along the way. And so I think the best track on the album with which to talk about how Christmas is incorporated into the soundtrack of Die Hard is a track called Welcome to the Party. And so I think you can pretty clearly see where the the Christmas has infected that particular track. You know what it sounds like to me, Mm -hmm. and this might be a little bit, bear with me, it's a little bit controversial, I might be wrong, but... I I like controversy. No, no, but just bear with me, okay. It sounds like, what if a stereotypical masculine man was in charge of organising Christmas? Mm Mm-hmm. You know, like cooking the turkey, setting the dinner table, creating Christmas ambience. Like, it's the music kind of sounds very manly. Yes. It's like a manly Christmas. And, yeah, that's what it basically just... Mm-hmm. It just makes me feel like this is basically like an amazing interpretation of what Christmas should be because it's just, it's quite intense mm. and it's quite heavy and you can't really, you, you feel like you can't really relax because you constantly, you constantly feel like on edge, like John McClane's character because, mm. you know, he's out of his comfort zone by coming all the way to LA and, you know, he's, a, he's in a city that he's not very keen on and, you know, he also puts himself in this awkward situation with his wife where, you know, he doesn't know how to reconnect. Well, he wants to connect with her, sure. but he doesn't sure. know how to do it um, and yeah I think the track is a really good overall characterization of him from mm-hmm. that sort of evoking his masculinity yeah, yeah you know yeah I agree I completely agree and the thing I like about it uh, this is and this is going to sound like really sort of almost hypocritical and weird so I get bear I'll with bear me with for you. this yeah. <laughs> yeah. is that I, I love how on one hand it's quite subtle in that basically this is exactly the sort of action like sort of suspense actiony type track that you would you would have in any action movie but it's just got that little hint of christmas because of the sleigh bells but on the other hand it's completely not subtle because it's like take an action track and make it christmasy how do you make it christmasy by adding in the most 
like obvious. insanely obvious Christmas instrument possible of just sleigh throwing bells, some sleigh bells yeah. instead of your normal instead of your snare drum basically is what they've done mm. which is like it's hilarious it's hilariously obvious and ham-fisted which I, again I guess gets back to exactly what you're saying it's, it's not satirical as well there's definitely a satire to it and uh, there's I think to me that is the thing that I, okay, I, I'll admit I actually hadn't properly watched Die Hard until I watched it for this, which is unbelievable. I can't believe I hadn't watched it. You've had 30 years. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> I've, I've had a full 30 years and had never gotten around to it. Even coming at it and kind of watching it for the essentially first time now, you watch it and it's like, it's actually quite a watchable movie. It doesn't feel particularly old and dated. Like there is a masculinity that hasn't existed since the 80s, don't get me wrong. But I think because of its sense of humour, because of its sarky kind of quality mm-hmm. to it, the fact that it's never really taking itself that seriously, that it's always kind of having a little bit of a dig at itself at the same time, is what makes it last and survive. It has that. It actually has that same sense of humour that current superhero movies have, where they're poking fun of each of themselves. Like the best ones have that sort of, you know, we, we, we're a bit serious for a while and we're like, oh my God, no, we've been too serious. <laughs> we've got to poke fun of ourselves. It translates, it, what's the saying? Like it translates over time. It, tra- well, it just translates well, yeah. yeah. Every now and then you get one of these tracks and there'll just be a little bit of sleigh bell where you wouldn't quite expect it to be and you're like, oh yeah, we're in a Christmas movie again. And it, it's exactly the same as how or while you're watching the movie, you just blah, 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 off you go, and then there's a Christmas tree. Like, oh, yeah, it's Christmas. Yeah. So shall we move on to, to Home Alone then? For sure, yeah. So I think that, I mean, you could basically pick any track from Home Alone to be indicative of its approach to Christmas. But I think I think the best one to, to roll with is essentially the first one we hear. Which right, is, the beginning of the film. Yeah, which is a track called The House. can we say you know I'm sure a lot of people will say that it reminds them of Harry Potter now if yes <laughs> it's, it's like, amazing how much Harry Potter picks up on that yeah same director as well and we yeah, are and same composer, composer. yeah, yeah. <laughs> same director composer relationship so it's kind of interesting how it's sort of like oh good and especially how many years apart they are as well it's yeah, almost like he kind of took that like rehashed years it apart? Yeah. yeah yeah it is and um, of course, it's it's you know what it just got me thinking how the difference between I was thinking I was kind of comparing it just now in my head between Danny Elfman's Edward Scissorhands and this particular mm. uh, soundtrack how but how they differ how they're quite the same in that they both have this sort of magical whimsical element you mm-hmm. know and the instrumentation in some ways is quite similar and they're both being influenced by Tchaikovsky's sort of like you know <laughs> yeah that's, that's my pieces. very next note here so shall um, we refer to exactly which pieces they're both referencing oh, oh practically like the whole Nutcracker 
Yeah, the but whole... I think in particular, it's got to be Dance of the Sugar Plum Fairies. Yeah, for sure. So, so here let's it is. Play that. But like, there's something a little like I. This is something I kind of touched upon in the first episode where we were talking about Cycle versus Jaws. Yes. John Williams tends to kind of go for quite traditional, quite. It's mm-hmm. quite set musically. Okay. The musicality, whereas I find with Danny Elfman, or he'd be more playful with it. A little bit more playful and a little bit off kilter mm-hmm. as well. Just makes it sound a little bit almost not avant garde. Avant garde is a little bit too much, too yes. extreme. Yes. But it has much more. It separates itself a little bit. I mean, John Williams has his own signature style as well. Mm. But do you know what I mean? That there's something that is quite. He's there's a formula to it that he follows. It's very similar in Hook as well, mm-hmm. which I find Hook is a bit of a Christmas movie as well. Yeah, you yeah. know. I'm um, sure we'll talk about Hook at some point because it's actually an amazing soundtrack as well. Yeah, yeah. So there's a straightness. To, yeah, to, to John Williams and, and how he does it. He's got a very yeah. You're right. He's got a very particular sound, a very particular approach, which we're going to be talking about quite a lot over the course of this episode, I suspect. Cool. So then, which one is much more Christmassy then? <sighs> Look, I think particularly phrase like that is definitely the Home Alone. It definitely it sounds like Christmas, and it's because it has that magic of Christmas element to it. It has bells and whistles and and, and everything, and, and just immediately gives you that warm, comforting by the fire hug. Of Christmas, mm. whereas, as you say, Die Hard very much is uh, <laughs> your uh, single uncle in his in his white singlet has taken over Christmas. Exactly, <laughs> He's yeah. Just put a couple of tin, a little bit of tinsel around the garage, and just basically. says, "That's it. That's Christmas. Okay, we're yeah, done. We're done. Yeah, <laughs> job done. Yeah, <laughs> I'm getting a pizza. <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. Um, so I, yeah, I'm. Gonna, I have to agree. Yeah, if we're go, if we're going to be talking about which. Of the, which of them is more Christmassy and then yeah it's going to have to be Home Alone alright so two votes for Home Alone so round two schemes so both of these films revolve around a certain amount of scheming Mm-hmm. So in Die Hard, the the principal scheme, as it were, is Hans Gruber's scheme to rob the plaza, and it's six hundred million dollars worth of bearer bonds. And how quaint it is! It's only six hundred million dollars worth. It's like it's, it doesn't seem worth it these days. For well, probably in our times, that's probably a several billion, maybe like six billion. Well, he said he'd be sitting on a beach earning twenty percent. So I, I guess at home you can get your calculator out and roll that over twenty. Yeah, 30 and tell times. us. Yeah, I'll be intrigued <laughs> to know how what that is in our time right now. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. And in Home Alone, obviously the scheme we're referring to is Kevin's uh, house defence. Setting booby traps for the... The wet bandits. Mm. <laughs> That's really the best name for a... <laughs> a uh criminal duo of all, of all time. So that's what we're talking about. We're talking about the music that kind of accompanies both of these scheming moments. So we're going to roll along to Die Hard to start with. And I mean, I think this is perhaps the most iconic music of this film. And it's sort of hilarious in a way, and it's not really written by Michael Kamen, the composer, but it's in fact written by Ludwig van Beethoven. <laughs> because all of Hans's schemes are accompanied by Ode to Joy. <laughs> And I think, actually, this is the... It's kind of the most creative part of the score, in a way. I really kind of like how it just takes this, you know, quite classic old piece of music and just sort of, like, 
it, it throws into the movie and then it sort of almost like reverse engineers it like it's supposed to be part of the, the film. Well, funny enough, it's actually meant to represent its grouper's theme. It's yeah. meant to signify his, uh, I guess, classical education and intelligence. And German, you know? I think, of as well. Of course, yeah. Because <laughs> you hear it sort of at first, I, I think. You, you yeah, at the Christmas party. Yeah, yeah you hear it at the Christmas party when he's like trying to find... No, even, no, no, even way before oh, that. Even way before that. Even like when um, it's, it's basically it's the main song that was played for a very long time when um, John McClane comes into the building and meets his wife because I kept hearing oh, it yeah. it just kept on going on and on and on and I was just thinking my god when is this song going to fit if I was in that party and that song was going on and on and on mm. for a good like 20 oh, minutes go. so yeah I think I think there's an element where it's meant to almost be a premonition of Gruber's entrance there's a lot of premonition about it definitely yeah. so I, I think it first really gets connected to Hans when he's search- he, he arrives at the party and he's searching through looking for what's his name Takagi Takagi yeah, yeah. <laughs> and um, he's sort of, it's in the background and then he's humming it a bit. And then definitely when they're in the elevator, he's found him and they're going off and they're in the elevator. And he's talking sinisterly about the, the suit and everything. He then at one point, he actually just starts like singing Ode to Joy to himself, mm-hmm. just sort of menacingly in the lift. Mm-hmm. Um, but unfortunately, none of this stuff found, finds its way into the album. <laughs> So the, the best track that we, we, we're going to... You just have to blame the director for that because apparently like a lot of the music wasn't... And ended up in the editing room. Yeah, it, it was, was very it was fragmented. Yeah, and, and stuff. So, yeah, it's a bit of a. We'll talk about the album, I think, later on in, in more detail. But yeah, this is definitely a, a problem for this film, both for the, the last round, but for the Christmas music, and definitely for this. So the, the track we're going to show is actually called simply "Ode to Joy" on the album, and this is what you hear when Hans's scheme finally pays off. The FBI cuts the power, they open the vault, and then it opens the vault to this triumphant playing of "Ode to Joy." So the big kind of fanfare of it is as the vault sort of magically, majestically opens and then it sort of like keeps playing for a while as Brady pretty much just has these like slow motion shots of sort of Hans with his face lit up by the by the light coming out of the vault. It's all, all a very sort of glorious moment for him. Triumphant. Tri- exactly. It's a huge triumphant moment for him. It's, it's his moment to shine. Mm-hmm. And then you hear those little like Christmas bells. It's like, it's like the beginning of like... Um, uh, Winter Wonderland. Dun, mm-hmm. da, da, da. That's when uh, Theo, the wisecracking hacker guy, goes "Merry Christmas" and goes dun, da, da. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And then, like, it pauses for a little bit. I think the FBI guys outside run off, being like, "Oh yeah, we've, we've won. We've stopped the power." Blah blah blah. And then that um, that fast bit is the montage of them just like going in and ransacking the joint and just like stealing all of the the treasures and things. There's like a samurai suit of armor, and mm-hmm. they're digging through, pulling out jewels and 
bonds and, and everything. So that's, it just becomes Especially a lovely... Christmas. It's Christmas for them. It's this beautiful, yeah, like villain's Christmas moment. And I think one of the... So a fun side detail to the use of Ode to Joy in this particular movie is, yes, it is very German, but did you know that Ode to Joy is considered very much like one of the core Christmas tunes in Japan? No, I did not. Yeah. That's a really fun fact. Yeah, which actually means it makes sense that it would be playing in the lobby of a Japanese company. Of course, yeah. Christmas. Huh. It all comes full circle. Well, they did their research pretty well then. Yeah. And so I love the fact that it's incorporated into the film. So it almost feels like it's part of the film, but it's also clearly not part of the film. So it really sticks out for those, for those montage th- scenes as well. So it has a, it has a huge kind of moment mm. to it when it finally arrives. In fact, my big disappointment was that this, It didn't go bigger? Well, that it, we don't hear it again. Like, that this, is, like this is the triumph of that piece of music in the in the course of the film. I mean, you hear it again in the end credits, which I guess in the 90, 80s and 90s was a big deal. But I kind of hoped that as like the big explosions and stuff happened later on that you would get it there as well, but you, you actually don't. Yeah. No, and you know what? I don't think that it would have worked. It would Probably have not, made... because it's, a, it's tied to Hans. Exactly. And... It was tied to Hans, and then in some ways it would make it too much of a parody, maybe. Mm. Do you know? Probably, yeah, it's probably true. But, yeah, I agree. I really liked it. I thought it was a lot of fun. Yeah. You know. Um... So, moving on to Home Alone. And... Uh, Let's just go right off the start with this track, Setting the Trap. Like this one, it is bizarre and balmy and bonkers. You say about how uh, Williams is a bit too straight laced. This isn't straight laced. This is a bit ridiculous and silly. Mm-hmm. I, I like this one. The drum kit is the one part of it that I've got a real love hate relationship with on this one because it sounds simultaneously completely wrong and out of place, but it's also kind of hilarious at the same time. Okay. Yeah. There's there's a number of things I, I want to talk to uh, about this. First of all, that this is a kind of a, a thing that Williams does occasionally, which is his crazy skirt so type tracks. We talked about one in our very first episode, which was the preparing the cage from Jaws. Very similar sort of a skirt so as well, preparing the trap. So almost thematically similar. So we'll just play a little a little hint of preparing the cage from Jaws. <laughs> It's that same kind of thing. It's quite wild and orchestral and all over the place. And, and I think kind of kind of cool. Mm-hmm. 
Okay. Do you want to know what I think? Or Sure, go on. I don't like it. No? No, I really don't oh, like why it. Why not? It's very dated and it's a typical 80s, 90s trope to, you know, having a, a, a motivational style music, you know. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Do you think that's because of the drum kit? The, the, drum drum kit, kit. the drum kit and also the fact that they included that song, um, Carol the Bells. Carol the Bells. See, I really yeah. like the fact that I they used Carol know. the Bells. I don't know. No, it just kind of like, no, they made it into almost like a pop type track. It just does not work for me. It just, it, it stands out too much. It really takes me out of the film too much at that point. And it just reminded me, oh, well, you know, it's a typical 80s moment when like, you know, like an eye of a tiger type mm-hmm. thing where somebody's getting ready to kind of motivates them to save the world or mm-hmm, save something mm-hmm. you know it has a similar tone to like when nancy from um, nightmare on elm street is setting her own booby traps you know for um freddy krueger you know mm-hmm. here's a little hint of it here similar music vibe to it mm. you know with the drums and yeah. you know pulsing the action and kind of just I don't know no I don't like it yeah. it's just it, I, I know what it was trying to do it was the one moment where it was probably trying to be hip for its time to maybe okay. connect to the younger generation you know yeah. by incorporating this drum uh, the percussions and I was just like you know maybe you should have got somebody who knew how to program better drum perhaps maybe better drum beat as well it was just it just it didn't work for me but maybe that's the thing that's the thing that maybe people like about it the, so the the weirdness or mm. the i like that weirdness to it it's the one film it's the one moment in the film that i was just like no no okay. no no okay i I actually feel, in a sense, it's a bit like Ode to Joy, the usage of Ode to Joy in, in Die Hard, for, for those kind of reasons, is that it feels out of place, and that kind of makes it a kind of a musical movie moment. True, but the thing is with Ode to Joy, it fits the character. Mm. It represented the character much more. It just more. comes out of nowhere. Yeah, it does come out of nowhere. If it was playing on incorporating Kevin's theme, maybe then yeah, mm. fine. There is a little bit more of an attachment to the character. But here, it's just, no. Like, okay. it's picking carols of the bells and then making them a little bit more hip-hoppy or yeah. a little bit more poppy. It's like, why? That's fair enough. Why? No. Leave it as it is. Maybe I just like it because I actually genuinely really like Carol of the Bells. No, I like Carol of the Bells as well, but not with that drum beat. No, well, that's fair enough. The, the, the drum beat is definitely the worst aspect. As I say, I have a love-hate relationship with it. On one hand, it's the thing that makes it so silly. And kind of makes it funny, but on the other hand, it doesn't fit. But so, in terms of like representing, you know, our title round schemes, yes. which one is the winner? Before we get to that, I, I want I want to see if you have heard of a particular theory about about Kevin McAllister. Which is, have you heard the theory that this is in fact the origin story of Jigsaw from Saw? What kind of person has come up with that? <laughs> so I'm going to link an article in the sh- in the show notes. But it's, it's quite a profound theory, which I think sort of grew up on like Reddit and things like that. And a few years ago, someone wrote a quite decent article about it on Grantland, which is what I've, I've linked. Um, which, which basically, and I'll just give you the, the key points as to why they think Kevin McAllister may have grown up into to becoming Jigsaw. 
One is he has a love of traps that the victims trigger themselves. Okay. Two is that in Saw 2, there is an almost perfect recreation of the McAllister's basement, in, right down to the furnace. Okay. <laughs> um, three, it's not like Kevin only defends his house. He also shows a slightly sort of sadistic uh, enjoyment. Tr- enjoyment of torturing the pizza delivery man. Oh, right, yeah. Yeah, and yeah. also the bandits and, as well. And he tortures them as well. But, it's, but you know, they, they can be seen as antagonists to this movie. The, the pizza delivery man well, no, hang is on merely a bringing him a plain cheese pizza. When he puts the spider onto, um, I can't remember the guy, the character's name. Yeah, Marv, I think. Marv, yeah. Which which has a sore-like touch about it of, like, he makes the victims hurt each other. Yeah. And okay. then, yeah, and then at you're the, sucking me into this. <laughs> and then at the end, like the there's even there's uh, there are even physical similarities in 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 the faces, but, but between the two, which I think you should check out the article yourself. <laughs> okay, yeah, I think I will. Although I don't think I'll be, um, I don't think I'll agree, or I don't think it will warm me up. But it'll just be a it's, fun read. It's a it's a fun read. and It's a fun theory. I think it'd be it's fairly safe to say that it's not really connected. But there's enough there to be like, hey. Maybe this is how he started out. For sure. Or it could be just a case of that soul was just influenced <laughs> by Home Alone. Unconsciously. unconsciously. Yeah. But anyway, I just want to throw that in there because I think that is, that is that is quite hilarious. <laughs> it is hilarious. <laughs> it's actually got me thinking about it now. I yeah. it could it all make sense. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> bit, of, bit of fun Christmas reading for you. Um, yes. In, in terms of schemes, look. I, I think that this is a, a really fun track. I think it's a very hilarious way of playing around with not only Carol the Bells, but actually his star of Bethlehem Carol. The, the two are mashed up together quite in a quite fun way into into this track. But I agree, Ode to Joy is, is the centrepiece. It's a stronger track, I think. Yeah, and it, 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 I think I think you've, you've hit the nail on the head in that the the real difference between them is just how perfectly Ode to Joy fits Hans Hans mm-hmm. Gruber. It just yeah, that, that, the, the whole. You know, smarter than you, smarmy German. Um, yeah, thing. yeah, yeah. I'm right, you're. Wrong. I'm right, you're wrong. Yeah, I'm yeah. smart, you're dumb. That yeah. sort of attitude. Yeah, egotistical. Exactly, and yeah, sort of, sort of going to a to an old German master or Austrian master. Sorry, um, is yeah. yeah. Who couldn't have done it better? No. Basically, you couldn't have chosen a better like composer to represent Hans's character because you know, in some ways, Beethoven himself was a Berber. Dick. Yeah, <laughs> you said it. You could probably, honestly, you could but probably find his reasons. Too. But, 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 but Beethoven, we've got yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and they both died poorer than they intended to be. So there you go. Yeah. <laughs> Round three, action. I think this is getting to the heart and soul of both of these films. They're mm-hmm. both fundamentally action movies. And- Sorry, and they're very long as well. The two tracks that we're going to be talking about, they're almost the same length. That, yeah, it's amazing. They're just the, the length of these sequences mm. um, involved. Uh, so we'll start off with Die Hard, as we've been going, the, the earlier movie, chronologically. Mm-hmm. And I think what we should do for this one is we should just play... Okay, we're, we're probably not going to be able to play the full, what is it, like eight minutes of this track. We'll just play the first two and a half minutes. And I think because this is a, a really good example, of, and it's a, a track called "Assault on the Tower," which is as like the FBI agents are coming in and they're they're storming the tower and all that. And what I really like about this track is and this is this is what Die Hard does all the way through, is it just 
wildly throws in just complete random stuff. This is like a, a Jackson Pollock of a score, and he's just like throwing stuff at the score. So as you listen to this first two and a half minutes, these are the things that I would like you to listen out for. We have um, not one, not two, but three different string ostinatos. We have another rhythmic figure in the low brass, which actually sounds a little bit like the Imperial March of Star Wars. We have militaristic snare drums and horn calls. We have a random breakdown section where we have like modernist atonal brass with falls and rips and all of those sorts of things. We've got a very German umpa-pa type moment in, in the low brass. We have a little frag- another little fragment of the Christmas song Walking in the Winter Wonderland. And also singing in the rain at the right at the beginning. Yes, yeah, indeed. We have a drum kit solo. We have a hint at the theme from The Omen, a hint at the theme from The Magnificent Seven, an exotic Japanese-like sting, and a short heroic fanfare. So with all those things in mind, now let's listen to Assault on the Tower.
Yeah, it's very intense and robust. <laughs> it's it? all over the place, and it's it's hilarious the way yeah. that it bounces. But it's it, but you know, I, what I love about it is the hints of Christmas cheer being thrown in as yeah. well. Yeah. You know, it's, it's like it's, it's there. A, it's in the mix. Yeah. It's just, it's Throw almost, it all in a pot and see what sticks. But it's like it's almost it's done deliberately to kind of remind you that, you know, at the end of the day, this is still a Christmas film, mm-hmm. guys. Yeah. You know, <laughs> even though it's all action and it's like tension building and mm-hmm. all this. We've got things. Germans, we've got a Japanese tower, we've got FBI, FBI agents, yeah. heroes, villains, everything. Christmas. Yeah. <laughs> Don't, <laughs> Don't forget, forget Christmas. Christmas. <laughs> and I, that's what I love about it. It's just so bombastic. It's just, it's such yeah. an extravaganza. Yeah, isn't there's, it? A, there's a definite sense of humor about it as well. It's, it's, it's fantastic. And I love how he just incorporates all of our favorite classical tracks that we all are very familiar with, like Singing in the Rain, mm-hmm. um, you know, Winter Wonderland, and there was another one I can't think of. But yeah, it's just, mm. you know, I think it was quite cleverly done. It is. And it's quite cheeky as it's well. It's so cheeky. I'm. I'm not sure because there's, there's a lot going on on screen and in the sound effects. You don't know whether it was worth it in the end or not. Yeah, okay. to the to the point that I don't entirely know if it fully survived the edit into the film. But it, it just as as a track on the album and as a definite example of what the action writing is throughout the film. As a is, listening experience, it's you a mean, great yeah. listening. It's a great listening experience, and it is certainly typical of the action writing in Die Hard. Whether or not this bit actually survived intact. As it is, I mean, it doesn't really matter. It's it's phenomenal. It's, yeah, it's hilarious. Yeah, you can still enjoy it on its own. As, yeah, for eight minutes. Yeah, you know. <laughs> it's a full. It's eight a journey. Of- you know, it's a definitely a musical journey. That it's a roller coaster of sounds and yeah. fragments of music. That and I guess you said it's, it's a, a bunch of great formulation of ideas mm-hmm. that can be thrown. And what can what is possible? And. How, I don't know how many you can probably count how many ideas have been thrown in there probably maybe like at least 30 or something and well just from that two and a half minutes that I described we, we asked people to listen out for 14 different things 14 there in you two go and a half in minutes, two and a half minutes 150 minutes so one every 10 seconds oh god and, and I think that's quite great to kind of listen out and see as a sort of a learning mm-hmm. opportunity to see what's possible yeah you know as a composer yourself, D- definitely, and that's classic. Um, that's classic action in itself. Of you, know, have to be scenes, able to blend things. Yeah, you know, scenes going cutting, quick cuts, mm. and different different moods for different moments. But still maintaining or retaining a flow, a flow. to it. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that's very important. You know, because you can change musical styles and stuff, but if they're too distinct, to the point where they throw you out of the sort of the film Mm -hmm. or even the musical experience that you kind of feel like you have to sit up and be like oh what's that that's wrong you know that's kind of not done its job well so I agree you would not think that you could have that many ideas and still be in any way cohesive but Mm -hmm. he pulls it off Mm. right so then let's move on to the attack of the house for home alone then yes a very very different approach to action writing so let's let's play it now
So that's classic John Williams action writing, right? It's classic comedy, classic uh, yeah. like writing, which is important for this film because it is a comedy at the end of the day. Yeah, and I think that's actually one of like part. Of, so you, to a certain extent, you can. It would be very easy for us to sit here and criticize uh, Home Alone for being too magical, too kitsch, too Christmassy. But I think part of the actual key to this film, and, and very important compared to, to Die Hard, is that this is actually a Disney Christmas film mm-hmm. and some really horrible things happen. So it is important, actually, that the... To make new, light of it. To make light of it and to make it funny mm-hmm. that these bandits survive what are probably facial injuries. <laughs> In reality, they'll probably be dead by the first impact. Yeah, in fact, I think I read a thing earlier today describing about three different moments that would have killed the the, the wet bandits. <laughs> the iron to the face, face yeah. would have would have caused like permanent disfigurement. The um, door handle would have almost made his hand catch fire spontaneously, mm-hmm. and the uh, the blowtorch to the head would apparently cause necrosis to the skull. There you go. So don't try this at home, Do kids. Do not try these at home. <laughs> Absolutely Just not. Just call the police, guys. Yes. In fact, I think they may have even been in the article about him being um, jigsaw. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you may have those to look forward to. But yeah, so I think so. it's important that it had that sense of comedy and fun it's about very, there it. There are definitely elements of Mickey Mousing. Huge yeah. amounts of it. And... So talking about it sort of as a, as a classic John Williams, you can you can definitely hear some other John Williams soundtracks in here. There's bits of it that sound actually quite a bit like the Phantom Menace soundtrack. A lot that mm-hmm. sounds a bit like Catch Me If You Can. It's it, that's his style with the and so the, what I like about his um you, you, you're nodding as though you're about to criticize me. The what I like about John Williams's action writing style is that he uses the staccato woodwinds. He uses brass. He uses all of these instruments that. Most of the time we go to a director and they say, we can't use these sounds, they're outdated, they're old-fashioned, and to the point that no one else uses them. None of the remote control Hans people ever use that that kind of sound of, like, rollicking woodwinds through an actual action sequence that is meant to be in any way seriously. But John Williams routinely uses it all the time. And to me, uh, we, we've sort of hinted, I think, previously, possibly in the uh, in the horror episode, where I dislike this idea about how you always have to have like a completely new instrument and things like that. There's enough in an orchestra already that you shouldn't have to really go beyond an orchestra terribly often. There's just make good use of what just, you have. Just make good use of what you have, and that is. I know you're not the what, biggest John Williams fan, but that that's his strength. He mm. really understands what different combinations of, of orchestra oh, no. sound like. I completely applaud and I kind of respect his, you know, his skill and musicality in terms of whether I like the overall style. The in, result. The yeah. result, you know, it, it's just there's some albums I do like mm. and they do captivate me and I, you know, it fits well with the music. But then there's some that I just feel like it's too... You're sort of, it's too generic mm-hmm. for me. Do you think that's what that's the case here? Uh, you know what? <laughs> for me, it just sounds far too much. I know he's probably it's it's he's a big like Tchaikovsky's been a big influence yes. for him, but it just reminded me too much of an, the Nutcracker. Okay. And you know, that's that's simultaneously a very good criticism, but but also actually not not a bad result for him to sort of mm. give this film that nutcracker sound. Well, you know what? Yeah. No, I have to disagree because there was one part of the no, there was one scene in the film kind of when it's called on wake when they uh, when they slept in, and it's all very rushing. Um, oh yeah, so the the happy the the track that I'm talking about is holiday when we, flight, and the beginning of it 
sounds like a complete ripoff of Tchaikovsky's Russian dance Trepak. And here it is. And here's Home Alone's. It's literally, it just, it's exa- almost exactly the same. Wow. And yeah, it just, it threw me off when I first watched it and it really puzzled me. And I know this music. And I was like, I know this music. And this, you know, it just, oh, I don't know. I just, I felt like if you're going to do an almost like montage or like, uh, I guess, I don't want to say rip off, but just get the actual music or play mm-hmm. the actual, get the orchestra to actually perform like the Russian dance of mm, Trepak. Mm. Uh, the Russian dance Trepak. Anyway, do you know what I mean? Yeah. If you can't do a complete new version of it. You, you, yeah, you felt that in this case he didn't manage to sort of get beyond what was may, maybe have been the temp score. Exactly. And it's, yeah, it, I did not like that. And I it, that's the one thing that really kind of, this is quite a strong criticism, it really kind of pissed me off every time I hear mm. that part and I see that in the scene. Because I'm just like, no. I just felt like he didn't do a good job. And probably people are going to be uh, disagreeing with me, but I stand by it. Yeah, yeah, look, there's yeah, I could, there's definitely a similarity there. I suspect it was probably the temp track. To, to, in, in any respect of, of fairness, the one, the one thing that, that John Williams' version does bring to it is it does bring in like an extra... It's like it, they've sped it up about 20% mm-hmm. and an extra wildness to it. I think the reason why... Because the family is wild. Yeah, exactly. But I think the reason... Because this is actually a track I think has actually has been used outside of the film in like ads and, and things like that. Although it's perhaps confused a bit with the, the, the Tchaikovsky mm-hmm. as well. But I think the one thing that this track actually does do well is it does capture that madness of Christmas, that madness of never having enough time to get everything and everyone together. And because it, it is... The manicness of everything. It, the, the manicness, and because it is too fast. Because it is like the Tchaikovsky, but the Tchaikovsky has a like an elegance to it, whereas this has the elegance just stripped away and just like... Pow! Too too much, too fast. Well, also because of the other thing as well. Everything's sped up. You yeah. know, all the family like going up and down the stairs, yeah. like trying to get their shower. Yeah. You know, getting ready and stuff. Yeah. So yeah. So, so to me, it feels like Tchaikovsky by way of Leroy Anderson. Like it's just it's just every, everything just a little bit too much and a little and a little bit more and a lot more American. Mm. But I mean, going uh, you, back to the actual the the track, the attack of the house for the yes, yes. Um, the action. It, it, okay, well, maybe on the, what I meant was it sounds quite ballet-like, mm-hmm. you know? For sure. So, it's... But that's that's comedy, it's right? Comedy, when you make yeah, things comic, sure. you tend to bring a dance quality to them, and in this case, that, that's where he's gone. Yeah, and, like, he, do, he, he does it does his job, for sure. Um, I'm just trying to think, like, you know, with a different... Would a different soundtrack work the same way? Probably not, so... I think they're both genuinely pretty much perfect for the the, the respective films mm. this is where the fact that they are quite different films tonally is going to make it very hard to pick a winner for me because the Die Hard is, is crazy own, sarcastic like, crazy and brilliant on its own and brilliant exactly in, in every possible way and this is you know, amongst the better, although you know, maybe not even top five action tracks by by John Williams, but it fits this film, and the, you know, these quite iconic scenes of this film very, very well. They're both very effective pieces of music, so I'm finding it very hard to pick a winner. 
Um, I might help you here. Okay. Okay, so I would probably go for Home Alone only because, yeah, I know, it's a bit of a controversy. I, I did not expect you to go that way. <laughs> well, hear me out. It's only because if we're talking about in terms of action, the music highlights every sort of trigger point, you know, edit pretty well. And none of the, none of the music gets lost as a listening experience no. as well. Whereas the Die Hard one, as, we, as you mentioned earlier, I love that when you listen to the music on mm. its own you're like oh where does this come from in the f where does this yeah. bit come in the film and it's lost in the actual film footage mm -hmm. you know along with all the explosions that come in and all the voicing and all the sort of sound effects mm. um so you can easily just think that it's just act you don't pick out those little finer the details moments. you you only really appreciate them later on when you listen to the album exactly and so when you're as a listen as a listener and somebody who's watching the film, you're just seeing it and hearing it as a just typical action film yeah. that could probably any other old action music mm -hmm. could be placed onto it. Mm -hmm. Whereas I guess the Home Alone one, there is a sort of style and identity to it yeah. that is, you know, very specific. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. And in a similar way to how in the in the last round we decided that Ode to Joy is better because of the way it ties into Hans the Gruber and the character. The, this John Williams action theme, like so many great John Williams action tracks, it does constantly cycle in the actual themes of the movie, the themes of the band, the themes of Kevin, the themes of the mother. Like it, it does bring them and brings them up appropriately, and it bounces between little suspense moments and then builds mm -hmm. up to action moments and builds into suspense moments. Where, yes, definitely one of the things of the Die Hard track is it is classic action writing in that it is just if you are as crazy and wild and rhythmically all over the place as possible, then they can cut anything to it. Because if, you, if your music is constantly cutting and changing and switching and swapping, it doesn't matter. The, the editor just has an infinite number of points mm -hmm. to attach stuff to. Whereas the John Williams stuff has to be so on point to the actual scene. Mm -hmm. You can kind of very much feel that he Mickey Mouses, but he also he composes to scene and to moments and adds in emotional an emotional journey through mm. that whole action sequence. Whereas the Die Hard stuff, whereas we can now listen to it, like, oh my god, it's got this and that and film references from here and there and little Japanese moments and, and th yeah, you're right. You don't you don't get that in the film. You're not having a moment of oh, this definitely brings everything together. In fact, this isn't even that significant of a scene in the film. So does that help you to pick your window? I'm going to go with John Williams. <laughs> <laughs> We move on to round four, emotion, or should we say... Sentimental. Yeah, um, sentimental uh, relationship. And sentimental moment, maybe. Yeah, I think something something along those lines. Bear with us, guys. Well, and also because they both come at the end of the film, so it's yes. almost like... Finales the, the as well. The finale, like the emotional, the... Oh, what's the word there? It's emotional payoff, really. Yeah, exactly. That's the word I was thinking of, payoff. Yeah. Yeah. Again, we'll start off with Die Hard, and what we're talking about with Die Hard is the the true romantic relationship of of the film, which is the bromance. Yes, of course. <laughs> obviously, John McClane and uh, Sergeant Al Powell. <laughs> yes, <laughs> where he's walking along with his know, wife, with his wife, like arm over his wife, you know, blood stained hair shirt I guess at this point yeah. and, and and who is he most excited to see this man who he's literally never met in his life exactly yeah <laughs> in fact the last time he saw him he was literally shooting at him yep exactly I just I love that it's like he like 
he's he was having so John and Al Powell having a moment more so than his wife. Yeah, you know, <laughs> he basically just forgot about his wife. It's almost like yeah. you know when you just push somebody out of the way, it's like yeah. out of the way. It's like even this is like, the man I want to be emotional with. Yeah, even <laughs> though in this like scene she like um, takes his name again and does yeah. all these things like that. Nah, nah. <laughs> Al, Al's the man, Al's for, the man. Um, for me. And um, yeah, it's just so funny. It's just complete bromance. But what I found is interesting is that it's actually it's. Um, it's not Michael Kamen's song. It's actually by somebody else. Is it? It is. It's um, the, the track is called We Got Each, Each Other, Other, written by John Scotts, and it's the score for the 1987 film Man on Fire. Really? Yeah. Well, let's listen to it. Okay, well, that explains why it sounds like nothing else in this score. And why we actually found it really hard to find it. Yes. You know, because we had a bit of difficulty trying to find because I found the scene that mm-hmm. I was ref- that I wanted us to talk about. Yes. We, did, we had a bit of a, not an, an argument, but like we were trying to decipher like which rounds sh- should yeah, we Yeah, and about. this was this was the last round that we sort yeah. of decided to put in. Because it, it's difficult, mainly because when I first looked at the Die Hard soundtrack, there was literally no emotion music in there. There mm. was nothing that related to his relationship with his wife or even this particular relationship with Al. Mm-hmm. There was a couple of, there are like phone conversations between the two of them that are underscored, but they're basically underscored just with general sort of Sadness. Yeah, it's just like it's John McClane struggling but on a right. phone. There was no. There was. This is the first time we ever hear some sort of a romantic or optimistic music. You know, where because mm. everything else is so dark and ominous, and there's always a constant like play yeah. with threats and action and yeah. stuff. You know, or whereas, random movie reference. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And there was just no. Um, but this comes out of nowhere. It, it, it does. Literally, it well, sounds actually, like something out of like Gone with the Wind or something. It sounds old. Yeah. To me. Oh, very funny though as yeah. well. Yeah, it is. It's, it's hilarious because yeah, it's, again, it's, it's another joke basically of yeah, we're going to throw this like nineteen. But even the way, 50s. even the way it's shot as well, where yeah. like you know Al Powell is coming through the crowds, <laughs> yeah. you know, and then there's the reveal of him, and they see each other, they're locking eyes with each other, and they almost yeah. like run up to each other. It's almost like an old-fashioned old fashioned school is. moment. And in fact, it is backwards because like normally. I feel like the way, how this scene would be is he'd be like arm in arm with his like comrade from the from the battle or whatever, and then the wife and child would come through the crowd like that. That's and how then they would like, run Armageddon up to each other and or something hold each would, other, yeah. would finish, right? Yeah. But it's it's literally backwards. Of he's already it's arm subverted. in arm with the wife who was an active part of negotiating and getting out of the tower. Like she was not just a passive princess to be saved. She was actually a strong figure. A like strong she, figure she was a of, smart person who yeah, was trying to get all the, the hostages. She was the one who most had it together and actually contributed to saving. Like she mm. had agency in this film. And so she kind of was one of the sidekicks on the inside, as it were. And yeah, it's, it's backwards. <laughs> mm. <laughs> but Al is the one he really wants to see. Yeah. I like it. It's hilarious. I do. So do I. I think it's just it's just so it's it's a great moment for every man 
you know, who has a similar relationship yeah. with their other sort of male friend, you know. Do you think this is why a, a certain demographic of people love this as a Christmas movie? <laughs> For sure. Yeah, is this relationship with Al? Yeah, I mean, I totally, I, I like this track. Even though... Um, it's not by Michael Kamen, mm. but for the scene, I think it works very well. Yeah, you it know, does. Considering the fact that you don't know, you don't always, you very rarely get a scene where you kind of celebrate the relationship between a man and another man. Mm-hmm. Um, it's always your typical trope, always mm. like a male and female sort of relationship and celebration of their union, they're coming yeah. together and stuff. Yeah, the men will be the. the- relationship with the men is going to be combined in some sort of like militaristic like band of brothersy type theme which doesn't really talk but about interrelation but that's but that's a connection of them yeah, yeah but it was still true. it's very quite rare but I, I liked it I think there was something quite sweet about there it is. as well it's so cute and funny yeah so shall we shall we roll on to Home Alone yep let's go for it so, so let, let's just let's just come straight out with it this is uh, a track called Mum Returns and Finale So, you know, it's a sweet, intimate version of the uh, Somewhere in My Memory family theme, which just in that classic sort of John Williams style, he just sort of gives you the theme again and again and again and again and again. It's just all orchestrated differently and magically mm. just every single time. This is this is what he does and what he's, what he's built his whole career on. Yeah, I mean, even that theme, the mother's theme, is actually sung by the corals, like the kids in the church scene when yes. Kevin meets and has that sort of yeah. heart-to-heart with the old man. I can't remember his name. Mr. Winchester? Mr. Old Man. Mr. Scary Man. Yes. Um, but we need to talk about his theme in a moment too. Yeah, it's funny where they talk when where they had that heart to heart and they discuss but like what family means to them. Yeah. With that nice sort of playing over them. Yeah. I guess it's meant to kind of set as a little reminder, hinting because. I think Kevin's character is still kind of debating or do you think he's at that sort of um, realisation that A, he misses his family and yes, he can't live without them and that what could he do? I think this is one of those films that follows that classic hero's journey arc Mm. and that I think, so for anyone who's sort of read that whole theory thing about how there's a certain like beat structure to, to these movies that scene is what is described as the dark night of the soul which is as the hero sort of is at their at their weakest and their darkest but they realize in that moment the failing that they've had the the weakness that they've had and in this case it was his the the guilt that he's been racked by this whole time of wishing his family wasn't there which was the kind of the great like sin of Kevin mm, at the, at and the thinking that he film. could do it all alone thinking he could do it all alone and that he'd be fine alone and it's that that realization and you know the fact that he has the conversation where he's like you should reach out to your son that you've you know offended and, and things like that and he, it's his character's realization that he can do the same yeah it's kind of like take your own advice and apply it to yourself yeah so yeah, so that's the moment, and that's that's what it's coming out of, and that's definitely I think when you know somewhere in my memory, it's it's definitely it's about the, the memory of family and having to come back to your family. It's 
exactly what we were talking about at the, at the beginning of the of, of this podcast. We were mm. saying that no matter what you've done with your family over the year, you know, where you've maybe not seen eye to eye or whatever, you you put it aside and you acknowledge that family is family and you've, you've got to come together. Mm. And, and that's kind of, even though like kind of, it doesn't really fit that story-wise, obviously, because his family is still essentially a non entity and he's just praying that they'll come back into some miracle at this point but it's him finding his strength to sort of fight on and wait for his family and than. reconcile with them and be ready i think it's to be ready to reconcile yeah. with them yeah and that's yeah and that's what kicks on and then so then comes back and he's he's fought them off he's i i never quite understand why the 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 neighbor like takes him in so he watches like the bandits get taken away from the neighbor's house but then he clearly gets sent back to his own house alone. Oh, you mean like why does he not? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why does he not spend the night with the, with the, well, the maybe, kindly neighbor? Yeah, well, maybe Kevin said it's okay. I want to spend the night at home. <laughs> I'm okay. Honestly, yeah. I can take care of myself. I've I, taken, I guess so. I've, I can take. I've taken care of myself for the last two nights. I'm sure I can do it now. That's true. That's right. That that must be the explanation because it, <laughs> it, it always weirds me out a little bit that <laughs> this friendly neighbor has clearly kicked him out in the snow again. No, but also doesn't the weird the neighbor's fa- own family comes they to do. him? So maybe he would just be like third wheel, no. third wheel. Oh yeah, maybe. maybe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, uh, it's it's a beautiful piece of music. It's so it's very touching. Mm. You know, and there's a hits, lot of family just in it as a as a melody. It's exactly, new. yeah, and it hits all that emotional. It triggers all the emotional, yeah. You know, points of what was it, as, I, as you yeah. said, I, I was talking about earlier. You know, which at the end of the day is what I mean. The reason why John Williams is as well used and well loved as he is is he is very good at capturing these essentially relatively complex emotions hmm. into fairly simple themes. So winners. For me, it's a simple one. I'll just keep it simple. It will be the Home Alone one. Yeah. You know, just because it's it translates visually, emotionally, musically. It just it does its job so well. Spiritually. <laughs> physically. Yeah, don't forget physically. But um, yeah, because for some people, it does trigger them to kind of like well up. Mm, you know, and, definitely. Uh, I know a few friends where you know they say that that really kind of makes them cry, especially with the scene. Yeah, yeah because yeah, you know no, when the mother comes in and she turns yeah. around, and it's that sort of you could also see the emotion of her own journey of having to mm-hmm. have fought her way back, back yep. home, mm-hmm. and Endured the relief. A you long know. truck ride with yeah. polka band. <laughs> exactly, yeah. But, you know, she's finally managed to get there and the relief of seeing her. Because, mm. so, you know, God knows what could have happened to him. She could mm-hmm. have come home and him discovering his own, his dead corpse. Mm-hmm. You know, but Particularly given what happened. Yeah. <laughs> but, like, the fact that he was alive and, you know, it's it's a, it's a beautiful moment between and a mother and son. And he told you the house, yeah. <laughs> and she was just like, oh, my God, this is the best son ever. Why was like, I mad at him? Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I, yeah, I think it's a perfect moment. Yeah. Um, and, and you're right. And die, I mean, Die Hard, as we've said, it's a hilarious, amazing moment. And it's, it's, it's fun and it's funny from you know, a bro perspective. But again, it's the, it's, it's the creepy uncle. Yeah. <laughs> In charge of Christmas again. He's just, he's just throwing on the old classics. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. So let's roll on to round five. Legacy. In terms of my, um, Michael Kamen, I know that he did Lethal Weapon. He was sort of the go-to guy for a certain type of action film. That's what they day. like you to believe. Oh. But actually, he didn't like to be typecast. Oh, I'm that. sure he probably didn't, yeah. 
but it's only but he only did Lethal Weapon and you know obviously Die Hard, Die Hard, and a certain film with Kevin Costner. Oh no, I know, I know <laughs> Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, and he did X Men as well. Yeah, but there was a lot of um, he did a lot more work for more melodic realms mm. like for drama films and fantasy like Brazil like 101 yes. Dalmatians um, and the Mr. Iron Giants huh and Mr. Holland's Opus yeah and like what dreams a, yeah know. and what dreams may come which yeah. I love that film oh. okay so. we're doing that one, one. <laughs> yeah. no I, I really love that one yeah although I, I find it difficult to watch Robin Williams movies at the moment still it's quite sad yeah yeah you know, he actually also um, composed. I didn't know that he co-wrote um, "Everything I Do, I Do It for You" with Brian Adams. Yes. Well, so as as far as I understand, and he won an Oscar it, for it. Yes, he did. As far as I understand, the story there is that they, Brian Adams and whoever his song co-songwriter are, kind of built their track from Michael Kamen's score. So Michael Kamen sort of wrote his score, and then they built a rock song on top of it mm. so that's his contribution he didn't really he wasn't in the room with them as it were he wrote the bit that they were then inspired mm-hmm. by and then his music is part of it okay but he but he wasn't actually in in the co-writing like it wasn't intentional no like, like they didn't sit down and kind of like okay let's try and make a, an oscar winning track yeah, exactly. for a pop track yeah well probably brian adams was probably trying to do that but michael Kamen wasn't mm. it isn't it isn't, isn't like the other significant one which is um obviously james horner's uh, Celine Dion, what's it called? My Heart Will Go On. My Heart Will Go On, exactly. Where James Horner did very much write that note for note yeah. for Celine. Um, this is this is one where Brian Adams sort of took Michael Kamen's score and ran Influenced. With it. Yes. yes. Influenced. And ran, ran, ran with it. Well, not even influenced. Flat out took his track and ran with it as, yeah. as part of the film, which is amazing. But anyway, that, that's another film for another day. But um, it's funny, I'm not, I have to admit, I'm not as well informed or as much as musically aware of Michael Kamen probably as you uh, uh, it's like the films that he composed music for I'm like yeah I love those films mm. I probably should maybe now doing this podcast I will take more time and effort to actually listen to his soundtracks yeah I, um, I would put him one day we're going to have to do a podcast like a about all of the like kind of famous composers that you haven't heard of like underrated composers yeah, the underrated that you should ones. hear of yeah like the Elliot Goldenthal we yeah. talked about last time these guys who actually have written music for great films quite well loved films with even quite well loved and remembered soundtracks but for some reason their name hasn't cut through like Hans and John Williams mm. and people like that. and Michael Kamen's definitely one of them I mean you would think that the guy who wrote Robin Hood Prince of Thieves would be someone we would, we've all heard of but mm-hmm. he just somehow is under the radar despite the fact his films are far from under the radar mm. they're big fancy famous blockbusters but yeah some, somehow he hasn't come through um, yeah so I think that is part of the story of Michael Kamen and I, I wouldn't say I am a huge expert on him because again like for me I was like oh he did that film like Michael Holland's opus Mr. Mr. Holland's opus sorry is actually quite a big coup for a um, composer to do because it's literally a film about a composer who writes a piece of music. So he got to write the piece of music. Like it's it's quite a thing. You would give that you're going to give that to a very good composer. It's essentially a composer's chance to shine, mm. and they give it to Michael Kamen, which is a big deal. Mm. Um, but I think in terms of legacy, the problem in thinking about Die Hard's legacy is that I think 
there's a lot of this sound that carries on into other action films later on. So there's no the sign- yeah, there's template no sig- does. Yeah, there's no significant theme that people no. can latch onto and hum no. almost, which some people might ag- disagree, but probably those people have watched the film maybe like a hundred times that it's so ingrained in them mm-hmm. that it's like they know the film word to word. But yeah. it's it's almost sounds like your typical action movie, quite sort of, gen- again, you yeah. know, generic, Film. Yeah, and, and it's hard to even within that sound say, well, were other f- composers influenced by this sound in Die Hard, or were they influenced by this sound in Lethal Weapon, which has exactly the same sound because it's yeah. Michael came and doing his thing. And in those ones, it's a more raw, simplistic um, action movie sound because in this one he's being silly and he's throwing all sorts of crazy stuff in mm. because he can because it's Die Hard and it's 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 funny. And that is not something that that has carried through terribly much at all. The only soundtrack, and I'm sure you haven't heard this, that I know of, that you can actually definitely see the influence of Die Hard for on, is a game soundtrack from I think a couple of years ago called Dead Rising Four. Okay. Which is a it's um like a massive zombie game, zombie apocalypse game set in a shopping centre at Christmas. So the your protagonist is running around protecting themselves in the shopping centre, and they go through all the different stores, and they all have their own little themes. But it is kind of like this and it is like full action music but then just has these little like snide sarcastic hints of Christmas music bouncing in and out from from everywhere and it's definitely borrowing from this sound ah, cool! and it, it is an amazing it's like it's soundtrack is four and a half hours long wow it's like 120 tracks or something it is bonkers in, in, in terms of it. but it, it is quite hilarious and it has a strong influence of this but really not that many films in between Hmm. And it's quite a shame that he actually passed away in 2003 as it well. Is. He's quite young. He was like 55, 54 yeah, or something. Yeah, he so. and James Horner, uh, yeah. kind of of the same era, similar style in many respects, and mm. both, again, then died in know, maybe 10 years apart, but too yeah. soon. Yeah, too soon. So to John Williams, he's probably, what, in his 80s now? Maybe. Yeah. So he's got a huge... Yeah. Musicography or yeah. whatever you want to call it. Yeah, however yeah, you want to call it. Discography yeah. of, um, you know, soundtracks that are just immense. Mm-hmm. And so if you had to kind of compare the legacy, John Williams would probably win initially. Of course. And in terms of influence, yeah, you know, it's, it's in terms of the scale, like John Williams kind of, kind of weighs down of more course. than Michael Kamen. So I guess in terms of the winner, on, on legacy, yeah. I mean, again, also looking at the albums, the Die Hard album is is a schmozzle. Like it's just because it's not really the music that was there. Listening to the album track to track, did you notice that well, every also, track starts with this weird sting? Yeah, yeah. But also, like, have you noticed that the actual album wasn't released until two thousand and two? I think yeah, I think there was one earlier, and then there was another one in two thousand two. Yeah, but it wasn't initially released no, as a, it wasn't as a released soundtrack. With the film. No, you know, which is quite unusual. Yes, but so that's why maybe it was a little bit of a late burner. Yeah, um, and it's just it's just not structured very well. You don't no. have a good sense of the film from the soundtrack. No, exactly. Those stings are annoying. I know, I know. <laughs> but and compared to that, Home Alone, it's it's a it's a proper properly released soundtrack. It's got the full John it's Williams treatment. It's a proper treatment. concept album. Yeah. you know that kind of like hits all the points and you know you know what you're getting yourself into musically as a listener so you can relive the film listening to it yeah well the one thing i will say is i think home alone has a bit of a problem i think it was trying to have a couple of things transcend the film that didn't and so i think it's got kind of three main tracks i think that that scherzo thing with the drum beat i think you're right i think that was meant to be a thing that would live on outside the film 
I don't think it did because it wasn't as good as I thought it was. Mm-hmm. The Star of Bethlehem Carol that he wrote, which is also performed in the church, also I think was a bit of a damp squib and didn't take off. Mm-hmm. But the Somewhere in My Memory did. And certainly I remember in the 90s, like that was that was one you actually would hear choirs performing around Christmas and things mm. like that. It actually did survive as like a external to the film. This is just a beautiful carol that, that, that people can sing. I don't think you hear it much anymore, though. No. I think it was a bit of a blip. I mean, Home Alone was a big deal. It was like the number one film for three months or something. It was third highest grossing film or something. Like that. So it was very popular, and I think that was what carried through. But I think they were hoping that there would be you know, at least three tracks that would kind of really live on outside the film. And really only one has and maybe Holiday Flight a bit. There's mm-hmm. a few ads. Okay. Um, but, yeah, it's not it's not quite like some other Christmas movies like Edward Scissorhands where mm. that track keeps on, keeps on popping up being elsewhere. Being rehashed and being used for commercial to the point where now it's just so... Ju- it's just like it's oversaturated. I just can't stand it now. I, no, I joke. I, 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 I you'd be I able lo- to get that face from you. <laughs> <laughs> no, I love that. I love it. I love the Ice Dance track, but it's just... it's it's been overused too much to the point where like okay you've kind of ruining it now it's moratorium time yeah yeah let's just like <laughs> yeah let's just get somebody else yeah. like or compose a completely different soundtrack so votes for Home Away then no Home Away <laughs> yeah I mean kind of reluctantly because if you look at the if you look at the stats yes you know logically hmm. John Williams is the winner yeah but yeah and in terms of these scores specifically I mean Home Alone is not the score you'll remember John Williams for. It's it's a much loved one. It's when you go, oh yeah, that was nice too. But it's a, it's a, it was nice too. No, but I wanted I wanted to give Die Hard soundtrack a go, but maybe because it just wasn't overly well formatted, you know, um, as a musical experience yeah. that kind of has let it down. Mm-hmm. I think a better album, which better captured the development of Ode to Joy and things like that through the film, and maybe you'd be like, you know what, this is a great album. Yeah. Yeah. Sadly, not true, folks. Exactly, yeah. So, yeah, so I'll go to Home Alone then. There we go. So, I think it looks like... Uh, you know, in terms of our, our overall winner, it is a comprehensive victory to Home Alone. And John lost, Williams. And John Williams. <laughs> it's a good win, and yeah, retribution. Uh, really, the only person he lost to was not, in fact, Michael Kamen, but Ludwig van Beethoven, which mm. I think he'd probably accept. Mm, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he'd probably take that, that, that loss, as mm. it were. That, yeah, okay, Ode to Joy has outshone. But, um, but yeah, look, it, they're both really good soundtracks, and they're both really fun movies. It's been a fun week watching these two. So thank you, thank you to all at home for suggesting we, we talk about them. And... We should do this more often. Like, we should, we we should, should give the vote to the audience. And you know what? I, one thing we probably should have said right off the, off the front, but I'll say it now, was I am actually surprised as to how similar these films and their soundtracks kind of were. Well, not just soundtracks, but also like the theme of the films because yeah. they're both about one person. Against, yeah. It's stuck in a building or a home. Against or the thieves. Yeah. And the way that they just use like references and they're just like bouncing crazy little reference ideas and hmm. Christmas carols and things coming in out of nowhere. It, it's fun. Random yeah. uses of drum kits. <laughs> so our next episode, we're going to be talking about... Two psychological thrillers, is that right? That's One's more of a crime drama as well, where the other one's much more kind of... Very psychological. Exactly, yeah. There is crime as well. I, yeah, I guess if you want to talk about like um, murder's banking, murder's a crime, Ella. Murder's a crime. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> yeah, and there is murder in this film as well. Okay, so the two films that we're going to be discussing are 
Side Effects and the music composed by Thomas Newman. Newman. You Were Never Really Here with music by Johnny Greenwood. And I'm really excited to talk about it because I love Side Effects soundtrack, yeah. actually. I really do. And I'm so excited to talk about it. And with um, You Were Never Really There, it's actually a soundtrack that I've just recently finished mm-hmm. listening to because I watched a film earlier this year. And it's, okay. it's a film that, again, watching the film, the music really stood out for me. And I was like, ooh, this is unusual. Even though it fits very well to the film, but yeah. I was really enticed to want to listen to the film outside of listen to the soundtrack sorry outside yeah of the film. outside listen to the soundtrack outside oh, of the film both kind of evoke that feeling of like i want to listen to the soundtrack on its own okay i want to learn more about it that's that's very very cool that's yeah amazing. the the one that i haven't seen you never really hear yet so i'm looking forward to watching that because that sounds fun what i will say about side effects is i think that is the last most recent movie that i have seen where i literally i went into the film with no idea about what that film was, what it was going to be, where it was going to go, what it was going to do, and for, and I was and I just got swept away by it. I just like the the story is so clever and mm. so cool, and it just it just really gripped me. I just got completely caught up in in just the story of it all, the the, the movie magic. So I was yeah, just completely like silence says, oh, this looks okay. I think it was I think it was at a point where I was like, I'll go to the movies every Tuesday night because I should see more films. And I just sort of rolled in and oh, it's the best thing that looks available. No idea what's going on. And it was just one of those pleasant surprises. You don't get those enough anymore. I feel like too often these days, you know too much about a film before you actually go and see it. Mm-hmm. For sure, especially with the trailers, the way that it's cut and how it, oh, some trailers pretty much tell you the whole story. Yeah, and I just think the way that we choose, like, make decisions about our time these days, where I think because of... Netflix and everything like you've got so many choices now in terms of what no, you can see. It's hard to make a choice. Yeah, so you wind up having to actually analyze each decision of is it worth my while going to the movies to watch that film or should I just stay home and watch this? Mm. Well, yeah, I can't make the decision unless I know a bit about both of them. Mm-hmm. So you don't often go in sight unseen anymore. It probably happens You don't take the risk as much anymore. No, it probably happens more often with maybe a a box set or something on Netflix where you might like be like that icon looks interesting. I'll just click on it and just see. Like you probably are more likely to do that yeah. these days, and particularly with how much like going to the cinema costs than to actually like go to the effort of going out, spending twenty pounds and yeah. watching a movie. You don't you don't do that sight unseen much anymore. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe we should because maybe. side effects was awesome. Yeah, <laughs> so I'm really looking forward to that. That's that's going to be great fun. So we will talk to you next month. But in the meantime. Have and a happy Christmas. I know, yeah. Merry Christmas, guys. You know, and a happy new year. We hope Absolutely. you have a wonderful time with your family. Even, if, well, whoever your family is, you know, maybe if you are estranged from your family, find or try and make the effort to meet. You take Kevin's advice. Give them a call no matter what you said exactly. last time. You know, whether it's your friends who you class them as family as well, mm-hmm. you know, just don't spend it alone, basically. You know, try and find somebody. Do not be home alone at Christmas. Exactly. (laughs) Merry Christmas, everybody. Merry Christmas. Bye.
Todos los días 